Hi everyone, welcome to episode 41 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. I'm Grace. And this is Melissa. We love getting to know scientists and sharing their stories, but we're also really passionate about bringing attention to issues in medical science. Today we have a special episode of Raw Talk, discussing an event we attended a couple weeks ago, where there was a screening of a documentary that you may have heard of, called Unrest. Unrest chronicles Jennifer Brea's story to understand an illness that leaves her bedridden, but that doctors know very little about myalgic encephalomyelitis, or chronic fatigue syndrome, or ME-CFS for short. The screening was followed by a panel discussion, and we were approached by the organizer of the event and another grad student in the department, Laura Best, to record that discussion. We were both really moved by the film and loved the discussion happening afterwards, so we decided to take it and pack it into an episode for those of you who were unable to make it. You don't have to watch the movie to listen to this episode, but you'll definitely want to check it out. It's easily accessible on Netflix and iTunes. We really enjoy putting together this episode, and we hope you find learning about ME-CFS as compelling as we did. Scott Simpson, the co-founder of Millions Missing Canada, did a really great job introducing the film, where he described his experience with ME-CFS and gave some current stats on this illness around the world and in Canada. A bit of background on Scott, he was an advocate for HIV patients in Africa to have access to care there, as well as a triathlon competitor for our national team. He was the first HIV positive person in the world to compete at the Triathlon World Championships. He developed ME-CFS in 2012 and became an advocate for access to care for ME patients in Canada a couple of years later. Here's a bit of what he shared. When I recovered a little bit, or when my body became a little bit more stable, I took a look at the ME landscape in Canada. You know, what's going on here? Where is the need here? And I was shocked to discover that, according to Stats Can, at that time, there were 410,000 Canadians with ME. Now it's up to 580,000. So it's increased by about 40% in just three or four years. So that was shocking. And then I looked at what research was going on. And at that time, there was $45,000 in research from CIHR for ME research. So I took a look at that landscape and I realized, okay, so what's also missing from this landscape is an advocacy group. So taking an approach to increasing equity in terms of ME research and equity in terms of access to ME healthcare, decided to take an inside-outside strategy to increase that uh, capacity. So I could see that there were already people working on the inside, trying to work with the government, trying to establish those relationships, trying to build capacity. They've been doing this for three decades and had gotten virtually nowhere. But there was nobody doing the outside advocacy. There was nobody taking to the streets like they did with HIV, like ACT UP did, and being that sort of voice a provocative voice on the street so that you have both the inside and the outside strategies working together, exerting pressure on the government to actually make change. So that's how Millions Missing Canada emerged. It's also part of the global Millions Missing movement. And so I find it ironic that I went from advocating for access to treatment for people living with HIV in Africa to having to advocate for access to treatment for Canadians living with ME. So without any research funding, there are no ME researchers and there is no ME research. Segway to about ME. 
for the folks that are not familiar with it, it as I said, affects over 580,000 Canadians. It's a multi-system disease. The World Health Organization classifies it as a neuroimmune illness and gives it code G93.3. It occurs in sporadic and epidemic forms. Some researchers believe that it is caused by enteroviruses. The difference between myalgic encephalomyelitis and poliomyelitis, also caused by enteroviruses, is the location of the infection on the spinal cord, according to some researchers. So with polio, the infection is further down on the spinal cord, sometimes causing paralysis, or used to before we had the polio vaccine. And with ME, the infection is further up on the spinal cord, giving us our more global set of symptoms. Canada has the highest ME rates in the world, according to StatsCan. 1.9% of the Canadian population has ME. Now that's not a typo, I did not misspeak. 1.9%, according to Stats Canada, have ME. So here we have this fact, we've got 580,000 Canadians, Canada has the highest ME rates in the world, and we have this year $70,000 for ME research. So something's wrong with this picture. About 25% of people living with ME are so ill they are house or bed bound. The most severely ill require silence, a dark room, no visitors, no movement. They may require a feeding tube. CIHR funding for other diseases like multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and epilepsy averages about $158 per patient. With ME, the funding is at 12 cents per patient. With HIV patients, and there's about 74,000 of them in Canada, the funding is over $500 per patient. Something's wrong with the way our funding is happening for ME. So we thought we would push pause on the episode here and reflect a little bit on both Scott's words and what we thought about the film itself. And I don't know about you, Grace, but I knew very little about MECFS before coming into the discussion and the, the screening of the film. Same here, definitely. And after watching the film uh, and learning so much more about it, I can't imagine being that incredibly ill, but also being in a position where people don't understand what's going on or don't believe that what I'm telling them is true. In Unrest, Jennifer did a great job of humanizing the disease and really showing what the day-to-day implications are as well. Yeah, I think there's a lot of misconceptions surrounding MECFS. You'll hear Will DeVega later, who did his PhD at U of T, was when he talked about what he studies to some of his students. A lot of them would say, yeah, like I have chronic fatigue syndrome during exams and, and that's not at all what it's about. These people aren't just making it up. It's not something that if you're healthy or have a good diet and exercise, you're not going to fix it. It's physiologically something that's wrong with their bodies or well we're not really sure what it's caused by exactly and it's kind of ridiculous that in 2018 our first thought if we know anything about it is that it's still psychological Mm -hmm. yeah it's not depression and and you'll hear it later chronic fatigue syndrome the way you diagnose it is actually a process of elimination so you can't be depressed to to be diagnosed with cfs so that's that was pretty interesting to hear too after, well, I guess kind of building up how little is known about it and how people with MECFS are often treated, I found it quite interesting following that, that about 80% of people with CFS are women. Mm-hmm. And all the systemic historical oppression 
that has been associated with that and associated with women who have this disorder and have been mistreated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and diagnosed with quote-unquote hysteria. And I also find it a little unbelievable that I've heard of hysteria and I've never heard of ME-CFS. I'm looking back on these outbreaks that now that we know what they most likely were, we're still not educated about that. Mm -hmm, Yeah, and a lot of physicians are still misdiagnosing people, yeah. And it's also pretty crazy because CFS is actually something that's not a rare disease. So you heard Scott say that pretty much 2% of Canadians are affected by CFS, and that number is actually increasing. This is something that's affecting, I think, 20 million people worldwide. And we just don't know about it because all these people are, are bedridden. Scott mentioned that the prevalence seems to be increasing quite Mm. drastically, even in the last three or four years. Although that might also just be an increase in the diagnosis of it, which would be a positive thing. Yeah, totally. So I think the other thing that we both really liked was that the film actually touched on the struggle for funding. So there was a gentleman whose son, I think, was affected by CFS and he had applied to the funding body in the States and and was unable to secure funding to research ME-CFS. And that's something actually really cool, a cool outcome of unrest because so many people have now heard about it and there's such a push for research funding and for more money invested in CFS research. And you'll hear later, I think Will mentions, unrest is actually cited in in review articles and literature. So um, that's kind of a cool, I don't know of many movies that are cited in academic papers. Yeah, pretty amazing that it's making such a positive change. Yeah. Although I think we haven't quite reached the point where some of that change is actually occurring. So CIHR money has doubled in Canada, but it went from $45,000 to Mm $70,000. So there's still a huge lack of funding and we Mm -hmm. still have a lot of progress to make. Yeah. And one of the ways that that can happen is so CHR, for people who don't know, is the Canadian funding body that assigns research dollars in the medical research realm. And every year they make priority announcements. So if a disease is deemed a priority that year, um, then you can actually apply for funding and have sort of priority compared to other applicants and, and get the money that you need to do research. So it would be really cool if CFS was was given a priority announcement. I would love to see that. And... Hundreds of thousands of Canadians would love to see that as well. Mm -hmm. What motivates me to be an advocate are two emotions. Fear, or more rightly, terror. Terror of being so much more sicker that I cannot care for myself. And the other emotion is anger. Anger that what I would describe as a medical error can be so embedded in our healthcare system. You know, often we think of medical errors as the wrong dose or the wrong medication or they amputate the wrong limb. But what happens when the medical error is embedded in the medical system? That's what we see with ME. So the wheelchair here tonight represents the folks that are housebound, bedbound, too sick to come here tonight, too sick to run errands, too sick to be seen in public. And in early May, Canada had its very first ME research conference. And so Millions Missing Canada was invited to speak at one of the panel discussions when the topic was describe the ME research landscape in Canada. So another co-founder of Millions Missing Canada is Barbara Fifield. And Barbara Fifield has had ME for 35 years. The last 20, she's been mostly bedbound. 
So she obviously is too ill to travel to Montreal to give a speech, too ill to leave her home. So I delivered Barb's speech for her in Montreal, and I'd like to share part of that with you tonight. So these are Barb's words. I am too severely ill with ME to travel, to participate in person, or to give voice to my experience of life with ME in our healthcare system. I'd like to speak to people watching the live stream right now, while also speaking directly to the one person in Canada who has the power to make immediate, meaningful change in the lives of Canadians with ME. And that person is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The lives of millions of people around the world, including hundreds of thousands of Canadian lives, have been destroyed by this illness. Living in a perpetual state of severe impairment and grueling torture crushes the soul. More are withering away and dying while we are here today. I have been ill with ME for 35 years. I have been severely ill and mostly bed-bound for the last 20 years. My son, Andrew, the light of my life, is also severely ill with ME. So I know what it is like to live and suffer with ME. I know what it is like to have my life dreams torn away. I know what it is like to witness successive prime ministers fail to stop the medical harm. Prime Minister, I do not fear death. I would welcome its sweet relief, if not for my love for my son. I do fear that unless you make a public announcement and commitment to increase ME research funding and educate doctors about ME, our healthcare system won't change how it mistreats people with ME. And there will be more suicides, more trips to Switzerland for euthanasia, more requests for assisted death here in Canada. Research funding for other diseases like MS, epilepsy, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's is about $158 per patient. But for ME patients, it is 12 cents. It went up. It used to be 11 cents. Did you know, Prime Minister, that Statistics Canada says over 580,000 Canadians have been diagnosed with ME? Did you know, Prime Minister, that 25% of them are too sick and disabled to leave their homes or beds? That's 120,000 people. Did you know that physicians have been miseducated and uneducated about ME and often cause harm to patients or deny ME is a disease? No, of course you didn't, because you are, unwittingly, part of the problem. For too long, we've held on to nothing but hope. We now need promises to be made and kept. We need you, Prime Minister Trudeau, to do your job and to act with a sense of urgency that should be obvious when a public health disaster happens like with AIDS, like with SARS, like with H1N1? Why are you completely ignoring the public health disaster that is ME? I wish I was well enough to say all these words directly to you myself, Prime Minister Trudeau. The Millions Missing Canada spring campaign is hashtag can you see me now? 
And I challenge you, Prime Minister Trudeau, to do three things to acknowledge and see ME patients. One, stop the harm by giving a public apology to Canadians with ME for the decades of neglect and harm successive governments have perpetuated. Two, fund the research by committing to ramp up funding for ME research to equitable amounts of 92 million over the course of five years. And three, start the treatment by opening up access to medications like Amplogen and Velcite available in other countries and ensuring that our doctors have the proper training to care for us. You are the one person in Canada who has the power to help Canadians with ME. So I'm talking directly to you from my sickbed, Prime Minister Trudeau, and I'm asking, can you see ME now? We had four awesome speakers participate in the panel and share their perspectives on ME CFS. We had a scientist, Dr. Will DeVega, who recently completed his PhD here at U of T with Dr. Patrick McGowan studying ME-CFS. We also had two patients with ME-CFS, Larissa Fan and Kristen Nolan, as well as a physician specializing in treating patients with ME-CFS at Women's College Hospital, Dr. Sarah Selke. Hope you enjoy. Okay, good evening, everyone. My name is Will DeVega. So we examine epigenetic changes, and for those that are unfamiliar with what epigenetic means, it means changes in how genes are activated without necessarily involving mutations. So I published three papers, uh, particularly in the immune differences that we found in this disease. And the research funded in our lab, the vast majority of it actually came from the United States. We were primarily funded by the Solve MECFS initiative, which obtains a lot of their funding from donations from patients, actually. And uh, we did actually also receive some CIHR funding, and we did have some research under that. However, yes, as Scott mentioned, it was really small. There could be a lot more done by the Canadian government. In any case, uh, we were still very productive with our research. Also, through this opportunity, I also was very fortunate to actually meet with patients, to Scott, and really learn about their stories. Back when I started my PhD, a lot of the time, you know, I'd mention to folks, well, I study MECFS. And they're just like, what's that? And then because I'll try to say the more technical name, they won't get what I'm saying. So then I have to resort to chronic fatigue syndrome. And, you know, in the beginning, when I was first a, a TA and I was telling my undergraduate students that, a lot of them would be like, oh, I have that too during exam period. But, you know, again, uh, as you see from the film, it's, it's very, like, the type of fatigue that we're talking about is not trivial at all. And really, though, what I have to say is that it has changed over the years. Back then, no one knew what it was. But now, nowadays, more and more people are actually recognizing that it is a very real disorder with a biological cause. It is not a psychological disorder. And I'm happy to be sitting here today and happy to take any questions as well. Hi, I'm Larissa, and I'm an ME patient. I developed ME six years ago following a viral infection. And as you, as was mentioned in the film, there's a, a wide range of severities in ME-CFS from the very severe and bedbound to mild and, and able to pretty much function, but with some accommodation. So I fall somewhere in the middle. I'm able to get out of the house once or twice a week, but I can't work full time. I'm currently working one hour a day from home. It took me just about two years to get diagnosed, which at the time felt like eternity. But I've since learned that that's actually a fairly short 
time frame for MEA CFS. And part of the reason why I was able to get diagnosed in that time was because the Women's College Hospital Environmental Health Center is here in Toronto. So it's a lot more difficult if you're outside of a of a center where a specialist or, or a, a clinic like that is available. But I, it did take mostly research and prodding on my part to get a diagnosis because my family doctor was not familiar with ME. She referred me to an internist who also was not familiar with ME. Basically, the advice that I was given was that I would get better and that I should sleep less and exercise more, neither of which were helpful. After I got diagnosed, I was formally diagnosed at Women's College Hospital. I got involved with a few, or I found a few online support groups. And it was there that I really learned how many people are sick with ME and how much the health system is failing them. So I do what I can in terms of online activism, but it's difficult for patients with ME because they don't have the energy to advocate for themselves. So I'm really grateful for the work that Jennifer Brea and ME Action are doing and here in Canada, Millions Missing Canada. Hi, I'm Kirsten Darlene Nolan. Uh, first off, thank you very much for coming today. And if you look around at all the empty seats, not <laughs> that there's too many, thankfully, but if you do, just think of those as people who wanted to be here today, who uh, are unable for, you know, for them being bedbound or homebound. So hello to you all at home. I was only diagnosed late last year after a lot of searching on my part. My body started changing after being an incredibly healthy, active person. After I had a surgery in 2006 for my appendix, my appendix burst, and I had a really, really bad infection after that. And in the next couple of years after that, my health just started a gradual change and decline. I started becoming allergic and sensitive to all these things that I'd never been sensitive to before. You may have seen me wearing my mask. Um, that's because I have huge fragrance issues now and popcorn issues. I'm wearing sunglasses because the <laughs> lights are very bright in here. I used to be an actress, so this to me should be nothing. I've backed off of that career because of having Emmy and because of having all these, these new sensitivities because you just, you know, it, it changes every aspect of your life. So now what I do is I, uh, I work part-time and I spend the rest of my time resting and researching and trying to live as big a life as I can without crashing constantly. I've, I've been in a state of pushing and crashing for about 10 years because I didn't know that that's pretty much the worst thing you can do. Each subsequent crash gets worse. So now I'm in a state where I'm trying to just relax more. This movie is an excellent example of what we need to see more of, the personal sides of it, how it affects your relationships, the struggles to be seen, there's a huge spectrum of people who are struggling with ME, and I just want to get us out there as much as possible. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Salki. In 2014, I was finishing my residency here in Toronto in family medicine and happened to sign up to do a week-long selective, we call them, 
at the environmental health clinic. And it just, it spoke to me, seeing the patients there and the way that we, I'm part of it now too, but the way that we uh, would approach the patient history in a more holistic way. And I also found the potential pathophysiology behind it very, very intriguing, as I had a background in cellular biology from McGill. So it, it seemed to kind of make sense in a way. It was very interesting. It was a different approach to medicine that I found was kind of lacking in regular primary care. And so I went in for it and I did an additional year training at the environmental health clinic. Part of that, just for a, a month, I actually traveled to Florida and I worked with Dr. Klimas, who you saw in the movie, and that was quite the educational experience, very eye-opening, and took some of that information, some of the things I saw and learned there, back to the Environmental Health Clinic and to my family practice as well, where I also see patients with MECFS. Right now, I am seeing patients with MECFS every week, almost every day in one clinic or the other. So I'm very much involved in kind of the day-to-day -day aspect of it in, in that sense. How long are the wait lists to get in to see you at the Environmental Health Clinic and at your private practice? Can I answer this? <laughs> so I just went to go to her office the other day to try and find this out. And I was told that there's a wait list. They're still working on referrals since 2014. But that's how high the demand is. Yeah. At women's, the quoted wait time is 13 months. There was a period of time when I was working there in my fellowship where we got it down to anywhere between six and nine months, which was a real feat. Mind you, I was working very hard. <laughs> so um, I think that kind of helped. But yeah, now it's back up to 13 months. And part of that is just the demand. Last month, women's had over 100 new referrals. So if you can imagine, we're getting 100 referrals a month. And we're funded for 0.8 of a physician per week. So the clinic doesn't even run five days a week, and there's one doctor there every day. And then because we take such a, a long and in-depth history, we could see at most two new patients a day, and factor in follow-ups to that as well. It ends up meaning that we do spend a lot of time with patients, and that also means that our, the wait list is longer too. Funding would be good too. Um, and then in my family practice at this point, I'm over 13 months, and... There's been so much interest, and then I also have a, a regular family practice as well that I've had to hold the referrals at this point. A lot of people are, are not even realizing that they had any because they hadn't heard about it. Now that they've seen unrest and there's been more of an awareness going on, I'm, I'm thinking that's maybe why you're getting a, a bump going on. Questions from you folks in the audience? I know we may have a Twitter question or two at some point. Through watching the documentary and then also through research, I've noticed that there's a lot of possible causes to ME. Are we abandoning the whole one pathogen, one disease model when it comes to ME-CFS? I think one of the major barriers when it comes to ME is the fact that, you know, it, it could be caused by a variety of things, as mentioned. The patient population varies widely. Some report a flu-like illness, prior to actually coming down with the symptoms. Some don't. Some report increased viral loads of Epstein-Barr. Some report increased viral loads of other viruses. So it's, it's kind of tricky at the moment 
in terms of whether or not it's really caused by one thing. It's, I, would, I would say when it comes to the research, ME is kind of recognized as a bit of an umbrella for the disorders that are really characterized by this debilitating fatigue. But there is more and more research that is coming out to really try to narrow down maybe the different subtypes so that we can start, you know, really better understanding why some patients exhibit certain symptoms more than others or why they experience it more severely compared to others. And also at that point, it can help us really identify like appropriate pharmacological treatments as well. So what is the clinical diagnosis criteria for this disease? And what is the, the laboratory diagnosis? And also any particular therapy for this? ME is what we like to call also a, a diagnosis of exclusion. We have to exclude a lot, of, a lot of potential disorders that could be explaining the fatigue. So sometimes folks may hear that like, oh, this is a psychological disorder. However, one of the excluding criteria for ME is the fact that patients aren't suffering from depression. We have to rule out, it's essentially just a checklist of, of uh, symptoms. And uh, you also have to rule out any other possible common diseases or more recognized diseases that could be explaining the fatigue. If physicians go through all those tests and you know they can't pinpoint it to that, then they are lumped into the ME. So there are a few different criteria, definitions for MECFS, and that's where some of the confusion lies as well in terms of diagnosis and, and research, because different doctors will use different criteria to diagnose, different research teams will use different criteria to include or exclude patients um, from their studies, and that makes it really hard to lump studies together to get larger data sets as well. Some criteria are considered to be maybe a bit better than other criteria in terms of the exclusionary conditions. At Women's College, we use the Canadian criteria. It's one of the hardest criteria to meet. So if you meet this criteria, then you'll meet all the other criteria. I would say that the most important part of chronic fatigue syndrome in terms of diagnosis from my perspective, and I think from most clinicians' perspective who see these patients on a regular basis, is the post-exertional fatigue and the post-exertional malaise. That's really the key to the condition. It's not the type of fatigue that you would experience going to the gym. You maybe feel a little bit tired after you sit down half an hour, an hour, you get up, you're fine. It's a pathologically slow recovery process, so usually 24 hours or longer. And then the fatigue is present more often than not, and that it's debilitating in its nature. That's really the core. There's other things like sleep dysfunction, orthostatic intolerance or autonomic dysfunction, neurocognitive symptoms. There's a subset of patients that experience significant pain, and it's usually more of a fibromyalgia-type pain, so it's that all-over flu-like aching in your joints and your muscles, as well as stiffness. The simplest criteria is the Institute of Medicine's criteria. They came out with, I think it was 2015. They also tried to rename MECFS. It's <laughs> systemic exertion intolerance disease, which didn't really stick. From my perspective, the systemic exertion intolerance most explains what I have trouble with. Yeah, it's, it's a good name in that they grabbed the syndrome and they put in the disease too. Taking the focus away from just the fatigue, because yeah. fatigue can be caused by so many things. Mm. In terms of lab, labs you would be able to access, so OHIP 
covered laboratory markers, no. One marker or one test that is more accessible to patients but still fairly inaccessible would be to have two-day cardiopulmonary stress testing. There is a lab in, in Ithaca in the States that does this. So if it's really needed for diagnostic purposes, say for insurance purposes or something like that, then patients will sometimes travel to do something like that. But it's obviously exhausting. It causes significant relapse in symptoms. Um, so it really has to be for a good reason. We know that there's abnormalities in certain testing. I mean, there's decreased heart rate variability. There's finding of soft findings on MRI scans. When you get into research, there's lots of abnormalities. You name it, there's an abnormality. There's a, diff a completely different microbiome. There's changes in neuropeptide Y. There's changes in leptin. There's changes in the natural killer cells. If you actually have a lab where you can take a patient's blood and analyze it, you'll see that there's an abnormality. Either not enough natural killer cells or they're not very effective at what they're doing. There's cytokine abnormalities 100%. There's low-grade inflammation. You're not going to pick it up with an ESR or CRP, but it's there. So I'll very quickly touch on treatment. There's only one approved medication in the entire world. It's called Amplogen. It's not yet approved in Canada, but you can get it in Europe and in some South American countries through an early access program. We saw Genbrea taking Valcite. There's also Valtrex, so it's an antiviral. I suspect that I'm not as sick as almost every other ME patient I have ever met because I'm taking HIV meds, and they have, are not just antiretrovirals, but have broad antivirals. I'm also taking Rapimune, which is for people who have organ transplants, so they don't reject the new organ, so it's an immunosuppressant, and that's given me a bump. So yeah, practically, no, there's nothing available. And I think we have time for one question. It should be the Twitter question. This one is for the patients. So considering the wait times and considering your symptoms, what are some of your coping mechanisms and how do they help you? I wasn't on Facebook for many years, and so I didn't have any support systems or anywhere to find knowledge except for Google. So Facebook for me has been a big coping mechanism because there's so many support groups there. Also a heart rate monitor has been a big tool so that I know when I'm overdoing it, which for us overdoing it happens a lot more easily. And also for me, just advocacy and spreading awareness and social media stuff, because the more that people around me understand what's going on, the easier it makes my, the practicalities of my day-to-day -day life. You know, if I, if I need to sit down every five seconds and not explain it, that's a huge, a huge plus for me. I'd say the number one thing that I've learned in terms of managing the illness is how to pace properly. I also use a heart rate monitor that assists in the pacing, but this is really a huge thing that ME patients need to learn. And, and for that reason, the earlier they can get diagnosed, the better, because first of all, you, with pa proper pacing, you can improve or you can at least hopefully keep yourself from getting worse. It's people trying to push through and trying to exercise their way out of it, that can really make you permanently worse. So the way I look at it is that I have a certain amount of energy that I can spend each day. And that'll be, that amount of energy will be different for every patient. And you have to kind of discover what that energy envelope is. And if I spend more than that, I will suffer for it. It's also a matter of not just the amount of energy you spend or how strenuous the activity is, but also the length of the activity. So you have to really 
figure out what your limits are. For physical activity, I think uh, Dr. Klimas mentioned you want to stay under the anaerobic threshold, which is pretty much like two to three minutes. So I treat every activity, whether it's exercise or not, like that. So if it's doing housework or brushing my teeth, it's no more than two or three minutes, and then I have to rest. The pacing, I think, for me is like, I don't know if it's the same for every patient, but the amount of exertion is directly tied to how bad my symptoms will be. So uh, learning how to do that and learning how to slow down and not try to achieve things and not try to be productive, those are big psychological shifts. And I really think that given the fact that there aren't effective treatments and given the fact that a lot of friends and family won't recognize what you're going through, and in fact, a lot of people, you know, their family will tell them that they're being lazy and that they need to get up and go to the gym. Patients really need more psychosocial supports. Luckily, there are online communities, but, you know, patients, most people are, are not working. They're on disability. They can't afford a therapist. So some, some kind of social support, psychosocial supports in that way would be really helpful. What's the long-term prognosis for a newly diagnosed patient? Research recognizes that uh, recovery is incredibly rare with ME. There are very few patients that actually do go back to their normal energy levels. You talk to the patients themselves, uh, it comes in waves, right? There are periods when, you know, they can definitely do a lot more than they normally could, and then there are periods where they're just crashed and they can't leave bed at all. There's a really good review paper that was written by Dr. Allison Bested and Dr. Lynn Marshall that also talks about prognosis in it. And I believe that it's about 8% of the population that are diagnosed can have a full recovery. Most people don't have a full recovery, obviously. People can recover some semblance of functioning. It may be that 30% can go back to some work. It's not going to be the same work they were doing before, part-time, maybe from home, something like that. But like I said, just double-check that um, that paper. But generally, like when I'm doing disability applications, things like that, and they're asking for a prognosis, we usually say that their prognosis is guarded because we really don't know. It's so individual. It varies from patient to patient. It also depends on how long you've had the condition for, as was mentioned in Jennifer's movie. There's this three to five year period where if you get the diagnosis early and just start even simple things like pacing, you can potentially recover to a significant degree. But after that, the chances of recovery become a little bit lower. What are a couple of the most pressing questions right now in research? So we did, as Scott mentioned, just have a Canadian conference on ME research. So I would say that the big focus is on the metabolome and uh, how metabolism is affected in ME patients. So there was a pretty groundbreaking study by uh, Robert Navio, published in PNAS for all your research out there. That's a really good journal. But essentially it shows that the metabolome slows down as if it enters some type of hibernation. This corroborates well with a lot of other levels of biology. I can definitely speak on the epigenetics. We did find a lot of epigenetic differences related to metabolic regulation. So when Bob Navio's paper came out, that was absolutely great. And so at that point, and I, I can say, like Dr. Davis, as you saw in the 
in the documentary. He did point towards that maybe the citric acid cycle is uh, possibly a very good candidate to target for therapeutic purposes. They did talk about it in a small preview of the film, but they are working on next generation sequencing data and very high throughput and so to, to get way more data for way more patients. It hasn't been published yet, but at the conference he was saying that they've definitely got everything up and running and it will probably take maybe a year or two to get a ton of data out of it. So it's very promising. So I would say priorities for the research community are the immune system, metabolic regulation. There's also, uh, especially for uh, physicians out there, you know, what is the best way to diagnose someone without having to go through lots of bureaucratic hoops, right? Just to um, get a test, right? So this documentary is incredibly powerful. It's captured the attention of a ton of researchers. Back in 2012, when I started my PhD, you know, we still had some pushback, but nowadays researchers are very open and they've seen this film and they always quote it all the time, whenever. ME represents a huge opportunity. As Will says, you know, now researchers are starting to recognize this as a real biological, physiological disease. And so when the researchers start paying more attention to it, the money will start flowing. My question was actually for the doctors and researchers in the room about comparing the diagnosis of exclusion to particularly I've seen to fibromyalgia. Very good question. So there's a, a huge overlap with fibromyalgia and MECFS. And at the environmental health clinic, we will get a lot of referrals for fibromyalgia and the patients are so sick and we're going through all the symptoms. We're like, no. You have, you have MECFS. That's what you have. And the big marker, again, is that post-exertional fatigue, post-exertional malaise. It gets very gray in fibromyalgia because patients can experience more pain after they exercise and a degree of fatigue as well. But it's not to the same degree as, as with MECFS. Another big difference between the two is that fibromyalgia patients should feel better after aerobic exercise. Maybe not right away, but if they continue with their aerobic exercise regularly, it should help them. They should get better. And that does, does not happen with MECFS. So it's the opposite. We don't, we don't recommend aerobic exercise unless it's within the energy envelope. I'll just quickly add on. So uh, there has been studies in terms of trying to differentiate the two. When it comes to brain processing, fibromyalgia, patients actually process pain. The, the abnormalities trigger different parts of the brain compared to ME patients. You can have both diagnoses. Technically, in my opinion, if you have both, you really have ME-CFS. The problem is that because ME-CFS isn't as well recognized in the medical community, it's more beneficial for patients sometimes to have both diagnoses. Hi, I kind of had a research question. Realizing that like CFS slash ME is not entirely captured by fatigue. With that said, though, like it seems like a large part of the impact is a result of fatigue. Are things like stimulants, amphetamines useful in CFS? Or One of the problems with treating the fatigue as the problem is that you do get suggestions from doctors to try things like stimulants or things that can improve the fatigue. For me, the fatigue is the result. It's not the problem. The problem is that I have this very low activity tolerance. So I was prescribed Dexedrine by one of my doctors who assured me that I could take it every day. It would help increase my energy. I could do more. It did increase my energy, but it didn't increase my stamina or my energy envelope. So the problem with it is 
that it can be useful in temporarily increasing your energy if you really need to do something and you just can't get out of bed. The problem is that with that increased energy, you want to do more and then you will crash. So it's not a long-term solution. And it is for me, I had to stop taking it because I couldn't stop myself from doing more. And I was getting worse crashes, which I knew was in the long term worse for me. So I, for me personally, the stimulants was not a good idea. So for most patients that I've seen who've tried stimulants, they find that in like you said, in the short term, they'll notice improvement in their energy levels. In the long term, it's detrimental. Hi, I was just wondering what advice you might give. I've been feeling pretty crappy for three years. I have um, had nothing from the medical profession they don't know. All the tests run, nothing comes up positive. I had a rheumatologist that basically pointed to his head and said, there's nothing wrong with you. Three years ago, I was running 10Ks and could do 40 push-ups in two sets. So something dramatically changed, and it's been going pretty downhill since then. So I can't get a diagnosis. I'm three years. This seems to be like a critical period. What advice would you give? Get a referral to the Women's College Hospital Environmental Health Clinic, although the waiting list is 13 months. Um, check the Canadian consensus criteria yourself to see if you, if you feel that you fit that diagnosis. Check online uh, information about pacing. Um, get as much rest as you can. Don't try to push through it. Because if you do have ME, you can make yourself worse. And get a doctor that believes you if you don't have one now. Because you will need someone you can bring all the information to. And then they can refer you to where you need to go. Because a lot of the time, that's how it works, unfortunately. Just right demand now. a referral. We hope you enjoyed the panel discussion. Our guests also did a great job of recommending resources for learning more about ME-CFS. If you yourself or someone you know is suffering from symptoms you suspect are ME-CFS, be sure to check out the Canadian Consensus Criteria. You can also head to Science4ME, a forum where the latest scientific discoveries in ME-CFS are discussed and unpacked. There's also MEpedia, CFID Self-Help, and a very active social media community, including Facebook groups such as ME and CFS Canada. And definitely check out Millions Missing Canada if you want to support advocating for positive change for MECFS. Finally, don't forget to watch Unrest and let us know what you think through Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks for listening to Raw Talk. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. You can also support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.